Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. If you're like me, it can be kind of hard to keep these two ideas about the American workforce in your mind at the same time. One, that the economy is extremely strong and that unemployment rates are historically low. All right, breaking news. The Labor Department has released the jobs report, and frankly, it is huge. Yeah, I mean, this is another month of very strong job creation. And two, that so many families in America are having trouble making ends meet. Troubling news to tell you about this morning. According to an Urban Institute survey of almost 7,600 adults, about 40% of American families struggled to meet at least one of their basic needs last year. That includes food, health care, housing, or utilities. On the one hand... I still think the economy is very strong. On the other hand... Despite a strong economy, many Americans are still struggling to get by. So we're in a place where the economy is continuing to add jobs, but the quality and pay from those jobs still might not be enough. Here's Washington Post reporter Heather Long talking about how families on the margins are feeling these days. A sizable number of people will say, but I still feel anxiety. I still don't feel like I'm fully recovered or I still don't feel like I'm able to get ahead. Now, why do people still feel this way at a time when we're supposedly booming or very strong? And, you know, what I've come to learn is we still have some issues with wages in this country. And uh, some of our top policymakers talked about it this week, like, hey, you know, yes, people have jobs, but the amount they're getting paid is difficult for them to live on. So this is one of the major social policy dilemmas of our day. Having adults in the workforce is a core part of the American identity and a big policy goal of states and the federal government. But what if families are working and they're still struggling to make it? How could policy be designed to help those families? Well, one such policy already exists. It's called the Earned Income Tax Credit, and it helps millions of families and has surprising bipartisan support. But many argue it's not going far enough. In this episode, We're going to look at how some policy innovators are thinking about building on the current EITC to better meet the needs of families and address economic disparities. But first, it might be helpful to start with an overview of what the EITC actually is. Here's Elaine Mogg from the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. The Earned Income Tax Credit is the largest anti-poverty program outside of Social Security. It works by As you earn income, you start to get benefits. Those benefits rise until you reach the maximum credit. If you're a worker without children living at home, that maximum credit is about $500. If you have children in your home, those credits can be up to $3,500, even $5,000. After you get that maximum credit for a period, you hit another income level and the credit starts to phase out until you no longer qualify for the credit. Annually, the Earned Income Tax Credit lifts about 6 million people out of poverty. And it's important to note that almost all of them are families with children. It's also unique in that it's a refundable tax credit. 
So typically the way tax credits work is you calculate how much tax you owe, then you see what credits you're eligible for, and you reduce your taxes by that credit amount. The EITC is refundable, and that means that even if you don't owe taxes, you can actually benefit from the credit, and you receive it as a tax refund, just like other people who are receiving tax refunds. So the EITC is a really important policy, but there are some ways that it might be even more effective in bringing Americans out of poverty. The biggest gap, it mostly misses a key part of the workforce, adults who have jobs but don't have children. So if you're a worker but you don't have a child living with you, you're probably not going to receive a benefit from the EITC. But it's more complicated than that. Many also don't qualify as parents, even if they have kids. To be clear, in the tax world, you don't have children if they're not living with you for more than half the year. So that includes a non-custodial parent or even parents of older children who are no longer considered children for tax purposes. Children are moving in and out of households. They're moving between parents, even between grandparents or parents. And this makes it difficult to determine on which return should that child end up. Another expert, Len Berman of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, believes that this hurts the overall goals of the ITC. The earned income tax credit is really complicated because of the way it combines kids and earnings to calculate the subsidy. So you have to be providing support for your children, living with them, providing living quarters for at least half the year. A lot of low-income households are, you know, might live in multiple places over the year. Len asks a critical question. If you want to support work, then why not just support work? Why tie it to kids? As I mentioned before, there's also a good reason to support low-income single individuals because in a lot of cases, they are parents and you want to keep them engaged with their kids. And more generally, you want to encourage single people to participate in the formal labor market and become better workers and get more productive and make more money. So if the goal is to help people out of poverty in the U.S., the time is ripe for new policy innovations. We'll get back to Len's idea later, but let's start with another group looking to think big about the role of income supports in the EITC, the Economic Security Project. My name is Chris Hughes. I'm the co-chair of the Economic Security Project and a senior advisor at the Roosevelt Institute. Before he worked at the Economic Security Project, Chris was also the co-founder of a little West Coast startup you may have heard of called Facebook. He's thinking a lot now about how to restructure the American economy to make it work for everyone. So we have a, a big picture view that Even in a time of low unemployment, it feels like capitalism is broken and we need to rewrite the rules. And um, that a big piece of that is the creation of guaranteed income or an income floor in the United States. In different circles, this idea has other names like universal basic income or UBI. But Chris says it comes from a shared place. I think whether you call it a UBI or a guaranteed income, there are a lot of different ways to approach it, but fundamentally, they're each a set of values or an ethical framework for the fact that no one should live in poverty and that specifically we should use cash to create an income floor and sort of basic economic security for individuals. And this support would be additive and not replace existing earnings or other government assistance. What I'm talking about is a floor that is 
meant to be supplemental to other income from wages or to other government programs that guarantees a basic level of, of economic security. You could think about it as a public option for wages, if you will, a kind of guarantee from the state that ensures that no one is going to fall below a certain level. And then on top of that, people can, and majority of people will build on top of it. So in this world, the guaranteed income that, that we talk about most often is, is likely something on the order of magnitude of, of $6,000 a year, a modest amount of money that very few people, if anyone could actually live on in, entirely, but instead is meant to create this foundation that people can build a top up. Chris and his team believe that this approach will help Americans that can use it the most. If you're creating a, an income floor, and it means that the and, and phasing it out at fifty thousand dollars. In other words, saying that anyone makes fifty thousand or more, the vast majority of people who are going to be able to to take advantage of that are going to be the poor and lower middle class in the country. So, this kind of guaranteed income would disproportionately help people of color, and would uh, disproportionately help people who have inconsistent labor, whether they're part-time contractors, seasonal workers, uh, folks who uh, have a hard time holding jobs together because of, uh, for whatever kind of reason. The Economic Security Project's proposal would expand the current definition of work so more people are covered by the EITC. In reality, in America, just about everybody who can work is working. It's that our definition of work is too narrow. So a lot of folks are talking about expanding the definition of work to include child care, to include elder care, to include students. You can imagine other things. So that's something that's been really attractive to a lot of policymakers in particular, because it's a way of saying that, you know, let's do away with this deserving, undeserving, poor distinction, which is so based around participation in the formal workforce and take a broader view of all the different ways that people can contribute to their families and to their communities. And even though Chris and the Economic Security Project team see the EITC as not going far enough, they believe that it's actually an ideal way to implement the guaranteed income proposal for a few reasons. The first is, you know, it's the biggest and most powerful anti-poverty tool that we have in the United States. I mean, more people are lifted out of poverty already by the EITC than food stamps and housing assistance and unemployment insurance combined. So it is very powerful um, already. And it's also been very comprehensively researched. We know that the kids who are in families that receive the EITC do better in school. They're more likely to stay in school longer. We know that health outcomes, particularly for moms or, uh, and children, are better in households that receive this money. So we know a lot about it. So what I think is the easiest and most straightforward way to implement this would be to significantly expand the existing EITC. So this is an interesting proposal, but you may be asking yourself, sounds cool, but what would this really mean for Americans and families and wages and stuff? Well, we're glad you asked. Elaine here at the Tax Policy Center analyzed the proposal and the ways it would revise the current EITC. So they came up with a credit design that first and foremost simplified the credits. So benefits are based on whether you're single or married. They're not based on whether your child was in your house for more than half the year. 
second thing they did is increase benefits so for most people. So they looked around and said the cost of living is increasing. Wages have stagnated over a pretty long period of time. So what could we do to sort of make up for those lost wages? And they altered the credit so that it provides a $4,000 benefit for single people and $8,000 if you're married. Importantly, the huge winners in this proposal are childless people. The reason they're huge winners is because they get almost nothing from the EITC today, and they will get a substantial benefit as long as they qualify within the income ranges under the Economic Security Project's proposal. The other big winners are people who have not been considered quote-unquote workers in the current system. Low-income caregivers might be providing something that many people would be considered an activity of value. If it's not attached to a paycheck, the tax system does not recognize it. So the ESP proposal would say, we will assume you are working at a level that qualifies you for the maximum benefits. The proposal would also benefit younger adults in a meaningful way. For example, low-income students who don't even show up on the EITC radar and are not eligible for benefits, even though they might be really struggling. The other issue that keeps many students from benefiting from the EITC if they're low-income is that if you do not have children, you must be at least 25 to get benefits from the EITC today. The Economic Security Project would lower that age to 18. So the idea is you would transition from high school to either work and be eligible for the credit or being a student and be eligible for the credit. Overall, the proposal would have really broad effects. Elaine found that about 68 million recipients would receive higher benefits than they are under the current EITC. And on average, they would receive about an extra $3,400. The proposal would cost about $2.5 trillion over a 10-year budget window. To pay for the program, the Economic Security Project proposes tax increases on wealthier Americans. Now, let's get back to our guy, Len Berman, here at the Tax Policy Center. He's also been thinking about ways to improve supports for working Americans and has a proposal called the Universal EITC. What I want to do with this paper was, one, to identify the problem as I see it, which is not just rising inequality, but stagnation of wages. And the fact that the angst of lower middle class workers is really, it's not only hurting them, but I think it's kind of hurting our political discourse and hurting public policy. The proposal is there's a work credit and there's a kid credit. And a work credit depends only on earnings. And the kid credit depends only on whether you have kids who qualify. But if you have children that meet the requirements, you get a $2,500 child credit. doesn't depend on your earnings. And you get the credit even if you didn't have any, any other income or any tax liability. The bottom line here is if you have kids, you'll receive a credit. It doesn't matter how much or how little you make. But the proposal would also simplify the EITC by separating the tax credit for working from the tax credit for having kids. And then the earnings credit is just based on your own earnings. So if you make $10,000, you get 100% of that $10,000. So the the credit is capped at that that amount. So basically it's a one-for-one match up to $10,000, and then it doesn't phase out. That means that anyone making any money whatsoever at a job would get 100% match all the way up to $10,000. Also, the universal EITC proposal would provide people with more flexibility in when and how they would get their tax credit. It would add a new option for people to receive benefits every month. 
and you'd like to, to at least allow people the option of getting the credit as they're earning the money. The other thing is, I think it makes it seem like more like compensation for work and less like a subsidy from the government if it's just built into the system and, and everyone gets it. But the proposal also allows to keep getting a lump sum at the end of the year. If somebody wants to get all of their credit back at tax time, they can do that. They don't have to ask their employer to advance the credit to them. And the evidence from the EITC is a lot of people like getting the check at the end of the year. It helps them with big ticket items like buying a used car or replacing an appliance or fixing their roof or something like that. And one key addition, it would open up the EITC to anyone over the age of 17. Right now, if you don't have kids, you have to be 25 years old in order to qualify. This is available to everyone over age of 16, 17 and over. You don't want it to be young or busy. You don't want to, you don't want to encourage people to drop out from school. So the amount of support and the number of people eligible for EITC funds would increase under this proposal, which raises a key question. How would you fund all of this? The program is paid for with a value-added tax, which is a kind of broad-based sales tax that's used everywhere else in the world. It's designed that way because it makes it easy to administer, reduces likelihood of fraud, and it's simpler for businesses. The other way it's financed is that the credit is treated as taxable income under the income tax. So if you had $10,000 of earnings and a $10,000 universal earning income tax credit, that would be added together. And your taxable income, let's say if, if that's, or your adjusted gross income, if that's all income you had, it would be $20,000. So these proposals have some differences, but they all seek to create financial stability for families. And these ideas are starting to take hold in the real world and even influence the platforms of some Democratic candidates. So not surprisingly, with so many candidates in the race, there are a lot of proposals out there, including by some of the frontrunners. So Cory Booker has supported the Economic Security Project's vision of changing the EITC. Senator Harris has proposed her own credit, which operates side by side with the EITC, but essentially in the same way. You begin to earn money, you're eligible for increasing benefits, you then receive the maximum benefit over a period, and then those benefits phase out. Ultimately, it's possible and maybe even likely that these policies will never take hold. But that doesn't change the spirit of what they're trying to do or minimize their importance to the larger American project of economic opportunity. Take us home, Len, with a closing thought. The idea behind this proposal is that for middle-income people, they could do what our parents and grandparents could do, which is even maybe working on a job they got right out of high school, they could support their family and be able to pay for the necessities and also have money for things we all think of as necessities of modern life. When you look at the data for the last 30 or 40 years, real wages for people working full-time at the middle, the median of the distribution they barely kept pace with inflation. And I think a lot of the anxiety that voters have expressed recently has to do with the fact that they feel like they're working really, really hard and they're not getting ahead. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, the Earned Income Tax Credit is the largest anti-poverty program outside of Social Security. Annually, the EITC lifts about 6 million people out of poverty, and almost all of them are families with children. Two, it could still do more. There are a number of proposals looking to expand the EITC to include more workers and more support. And three, 
What proponents of expanding the EITC hope to accomplish is creating a stable income floor for workers that will allow greater financial security and help make sure this growing economy benefits everyone. So that's our show. A big thank you to Chris Hughes, Elaine Mogg, and Len Berman. You can learn more about Chris's work by going to economicsecurityproject.org and check out our show notes page for links to other resources. If you like the show, please go on iTunes and leave us five stars. We really appreciate it, and it helps other people find the show. And thanks, as always, to the Critical Value crew, Katie Smith, Kate Villarreal, Dave Connell, and our newest member, Jacinth Jones, who was a huge help in pulling this episode together. And finally, thanks to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from Podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.